Let's pray. Father, blessed be your name. It is the cry of our hearts, Lord, to see you honored and to see you glorified. And so as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that you would be pleased as we meditate on the truths that we find there. We pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts to understand and ears to hear as we listen to your word. We're grateful for this time of singing, how it prepares our hearts for worship. And so uh, thank you, Lord, for that. And we pray that you be with us as we uh, begin to study your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning to all of you again, and welcome to San Francisco Bible Church. I am really glad that we can spend a part of this beautiful weekend worshiping our Lord together because it allows for us to have family time with the family of God. And as we draw near to the end of our study of the one another's, I want to remind us why we studied the one another's together as a church. As a family of God, Many of us come from different church backgrounds, family backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, and even social backgrounds. And this is one of the beautiful things about the family of God. It takes people who would normally not have much to do with one another, and it brings us together. And it unifies us in our Lord Jesus Christ. And though this is a beautiful reality There are admittedly some practical challenges that we face together when all of us become one. And it's like that with any change, right? For instance, when you're in school and you have a new teacher in school who does things differently than your previous teacher. Or perhaps if you're working, when you get a new manager who is more by the book than your previous manager. Or... Maybe you're a newlywed, and you realize that your preferences and the ways that you thought things ought to be done aren't exactly the right way or the only way. Right? The list can go on and on. And the point is this. Change can be difficult, especially when we are all a part of a church and we want to serve the family of God and the community together, but we all have different ideas on how we would do so. And this study in the one another's has been aimed at helping us understand how we might grow personally and serve others better as we understand what God's standards are for us and for our living. So I hope that this study has been a profitable one for you all as you first apply it to yourself and then hopefully help other people apply it too. And additionally, I hope that this study has at least whet your appetites a little bit for how we might learn to better minister to other people through uh, biblical, biblical counseling, which is just another form of the one another's, right? How we practice the one another's here in the body of Christ. Now, for those of you who are wondering, did that survey come out? Did I miss it? No, you didn't. I didn't get around to it yet, but I'll get it out by this week. So you didn't miss it. We will have the survey out. Now, with that being said, um, let's turn to our Bibles to the book of James, as we study our next one another, do not grumble against each other. Now, I'm going to use the word grumble, complain, and whatnot interchangeably throughout this message, but, you know, do not grumble. Okay, so James chapter 5, verses 7 to 11. If you need a Bible, uh, we can get you a Bible, or you can also just uh, look online one of those Bible apps, like Bible Gateway or something like that. Okay, but uh, James chapter 5, 7 through 11. And in our text this morning, James provides us with two motivations— 
Two motivations not to grumble against one another when faced with difficulties. The first motivation not to grumble against one another when faced with difficulties is that the Lord is coming soon. And the second motivation is the blessedness of perseverance. So we're encouraged not to grumble against one another because the Lord's coming soon and because of the blessedness of perseverance. And by the way, uh, if you missed the outline or you missed any of the cross-references that I'm going to use this this morning, you can go look at the bulletin and you can uh, find this sermon outline there. I have all of the cross-references listed over there for you. Uh, Before we begin, let's read our text and pray. Verse 7 of James chapter 5, James writes this, Therefore be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the Father waits for the precious fruit of the soil, being patient about it, until it receives the early and late rains. You too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not groan, brothers, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, The judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who persevere. You've heard of the perseverance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Let's pray. Our Lord God, We are so grateful to you for your word, and as we prepare to hear truths that go against something that is human nature for all of us, grumbling and complaining, we pray that you would just soften our hearts and allow for us to uh, be humble and, and ready to receive what your word has to say this morning. We pray that you would enrich our our minds and our hearts as we study your word, and may we love you more as a result. Thank you, Father, for your word, and we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, the first motivation not to grumble against one another when faced with difficulties is that the Lord is coming soon. The Lord is coming soon. In the verses prior to verse 7, James rebukes the oppressive rich who walked all over the people in the community and stole their wages in order to increase their wealth. And please note that James is not rebuking them for being rich. James is not rebuking them for being rich. This is not some sort of anti-capitalistic message. God never forbids people from being wealthy. In fact, he often gifts people within the church with the ability and the smarts to make a lot of money for his glory, for the funding of the kingdom, for the funding of kingdom work. And so... Uh, we, we've seen that throughout uh, the Old Testament too, right? We've seen that God blesses certain righteous individuals, not all, but a few, with wealth in the scriptures. And so <clears throat> this rebuke to the rich here from James is not for their wealth, but how they earned their wealth. Right? How they earned their wealth was wrong. They earned it through oppression and thievery. They stole their workers' wages. Now, some commentators suggest that the rich people that James was rebuking here were immature Christians in the congregation. But the way that James speaks to them is inconsistent with how one would address a believer, even if rebuke and correction was intended. In fact, if you glance at verses 1 through 6, you'll notice that there is 
no offer of forgiveness. There is no call to repentance to these oppressive rich people. Now, I'm not saying that these people were cut off from salvation, but what we recognize is kind of a formula, a prophetic formula, if you will. James's words are more similar to how the Old Testament prophets would cry out against the nation. They would cry out against a certain group of people for their sins and tell them that because of their sins, they are condemned. And so, in a similar way, that's what James is doing in verses 1 through 6. However, here in verse 7, he shifts his attention. Right? He changes uh, who he's going to be addressing. And he's ministering now to those who are the oppressed of the wicked rich. Right? So he's ministering to those who've been oppressed. Verse 7, Therefore, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the soil, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. This counsel that James offers to those who have been hurt by the rich is unexpected, to say the least. But the counsel that he gives is important for us to consider. Believers in God have often been called to wait upon God for deliverance, recognizing that God is the one who is sovereign and in control of all things. The call for Christians to continue to wait upon God is no different when James was writing his letter, and it's no different for those of us who are receiving it now, or who are hearing it today. When suffering or mistreatment comes, Christians ought to respond contrary to our nature to get even. We ought to refuse to retaliate. And that's a difficult thing for us to hear, especially when we've been wrong, because Every fiber of our being wants to retaliate, right? wants to answer the injustice in kind. We want to clap back because we don't want to be seen as those who don't have any comebacks. But that's not how we ought to operate. And we'll see why in verse 8, but at least for right now, James wants us to know that we ought to respond to these situations with patience. And you might be thinking, okay, fine, fine. I will respond with patience, but for how long? There has to be a limit, right? At a certain point, I can retaliate. Eh, maybe not. Because right? James actually gives us a time frame for how long we have to be patient. It says here that we are to be patient until the coming of the Lord. Now that doesn't seem to satisfy, does it? I'm being wronged right here, right now, and you want me to be patient until Jesus comes back? No way. It's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus rose from the grave. And those people are dead. Right? Those saints who were waiting and, and who were wrong back then, they're dead. They still haven't seen it. You want me to wait right now? Yeah. Yeah. We still have to be patient. Right? And it's not because God's not faithful. We'll get to that in a minute. But we have to remember big picture. We have to remember big picture. We're reminded in Isaiah 
55, 8 through 9, that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, nor are His ways our ways. We're also reminded in 2 Peter 3, 8 to 9, that God experiences time differently than we do, and that He even has a reason for His own patience towards sinners. Knowing then that God has His plans and His reasons, we are encouraged to be patient, just like the farmer waiting for his crops to come in. Now, when you think about this analogy that James uses, it is really a profound analogy. Because even with modern technology, farmers around the world still depend on the rain to help water their crops. Some of them may not realize this, but really what they're depending on is God. They're depending on God to allow for their crops to come in. Yeah, I remember a few years ago when the drought was really bad here in California, uh, my family and I were in Hawaii, and we were, uh, we, we, we were shopping. We ran into some Christians at, at, a, at a shop who owned the store, and uh, you know, they were asking us where we were from. We told them that we were from California, and they said, oh, California. Oh, man, that drought's really bad, isn't it? We are praying to God that he will give you guys rain because your drought is affecting our ability to get groceries. Right? This is 2021 that we're talking about here, right? just a few years ago. And yet, drought can still affect us, even though we have modern technology, even though we have uh, you know, irrigation, even though we have you know, sprinkler systems and we can use recycled water to, to, to water our plants and everything like that. Because at the end of the day, right, everyone is still dependent upon the Lord. They're still waiting upon the Lord. Uh, you, you might even remember a few years ago, um, when there was that huge cold snap that occurred and it killed all the apple crops or a good portion of the apple crops, right? And then apple prices jumped up to like $16 for like two pounds of apples. I'm like, I'm, I'm just not going to eat apples then. <laughs> and it's just like, but, but see, that's, that's the picture of, of, how, what, of what it means to wait upon the Lord. Right? We do everything that we need to do. It's not like these farmers are just like planting the seeds in the ground and they're like, okay, I'm going to kick back and relax and wait till the, the crops come in. They're doing the work. Right? They're doing everything that they are responsible for that would be necessary to bring the crops in. But at the end of the day, they're still waiting upon God, basically. Or even if they're not Christians, they're waiting upon God to ensure that the crops come in. In a similar way, we know that God has his own plans and purposes. Right? And so in our lives, we do what is necessary in terms of responding well to the circumstances that we're in. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we wait for God to bring about the outcomes that we desire to see in this life. Sometimes we might see it. Sometimes we won't. But either way, we are encouraged to be patient. We're encouraged to be patient. Verse 8 elaborates on this more. It says here, just like the farmer, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This call for believers to strengthen their hearts or to have courage recognizes that waiting upon God, it's not always easy. Especially because we recognize if that... uh, that if patience for all believers must be until the Lord comes again, that the trouble that we experience in this life, it's not going away anytime soon either. 
That's difficult to hear. That's difficult to try and live through. However, this courage that we are to have is not courage that we find in ourselves. If it was the courage that we would find in ourselves, we could be easily discouraged. We could easily lose heart. But this courage that we have, it's fueled by faith in the Lord. And it's for this reason we are told to strengthen our hearts in light of his coming. Right? In light of the coming of the Lord. And the coming of the Lord fuels our courage in multiple ways. First, it reminds us that the Lord is faithful to keep his promises. And that means when we read our Bibles, when we read about what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, how he has won for us victory, and how we will, he will come again to bring us home, to make an end to all sin, we know because of the track record of the Bible that God can be trusted. Right? That when we see that Jesus is coming back, he really is coming back. There are still some promises in the Old Testament that haven't been fulfilled all you know, to the T, all the way. But these promises, they're all in progress. Right? These promises that God has made, the fulfillment of them are all in progress. And we've seen many, uh, many of those promises fulfilled even in the coming of Christ. The fact that he will come in to the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey, that was fulfilled in the triumphal entry. The fact that he was going to be born of a virgin, that was fulfilled at his birth. Sorry, a little out of order there, right? But you know, we've seen the fulfillment of all these things. We know that Messiah was supposed to be cut off, and he was at the cross. Right? But then he will, he will live again, and he will see his offspring. And he, he is. Right? He does. He has. He's been resurrected, and he has seen his offspring. Right? The church. So we know that God is faithful, that everything he promises, he will do. That's an encouraging thing. Right? And so that's how the coming of the Lord can be an encouragement to us. It reminds us of his faithfulness to keep his promises. But second, the coming of the Lord fuels our courage because it reminds us of the fearful reality of what his coming signifies for unbelievers. Now, it is true that God has a heart for unbelievers and that he wants them to be saved. Right? We know that. But he also wants, a, and we also know that he wants us to have compassion on them and to witness to them. But we also know that at a certain point, time runs out. At a certain point, time runs out. The patience that God shows sinners, it will not be forever. And when the future time comes, when the time of patience is over, and the time for judgment begins, there is nothing more terrifying than to fall into the hands of holy God. And there is an immense comfort for Christians who have been wronged or knowing that God will right every wrong. Of course, we're not to delight in the death of the wicked because we know that God wants them to be saved. But we also have to balance that fact out with the fact that justice still has to be served. We know from various passages throughout Scripture, God does not let sin go. It is punished one way or another. And the coming of the Lord reminds us that our patience, it will not be in vain. When the time of judgment comes, that is it. There is no escape. Unbelievers have been judged against God's holy standard and they've been found wanting. 
Therefore, their sins against an absolutely holy, righteous, and eternal God will be judged in full, with full consideration of the magnitude of their rebellion against Him. God will not forget. Justice will be fulfilled, maybe not on our terms, but definitely on His terms. And by the way, that's a scarier reality than we might even realize. This is a bit of an aside, but sometimes I wonder if we don't think enough about the fearsome reality of hell and the fearsome reality of God's wrath. Maybe it's because for those of us who are Christians, we're like, well, Jesus died for my sins, so I don't got to worry about that, so I'm not going to think about it, right? Maybe that's it. Or maybe we're tempted to be like, well, I mean, God's gracious and compassionate anyway, right? So how bad can it really be? But when you read the prophets... And you see what God is going to do in the future to judge the nations here on this earth. That should remind you that those judgments, those bloody judgments, those fiery judgments, that only scratches the surface of what God will do. It only scratches the surface. And that's terrifying to think about. And the reason why I say this is not because I don't, it's not because I'm trying to scare people into heaven. It's not because. I delight in this idea of this world burning, but it's to remind us that God's judgment, it's no joke. God's judgment is no joke. When the time for leniency is gone, oh, it'll be scary. Because when God judges, there will be perfect judgment. And we learned in physics that for every action, there is an equal opposite reaction. And I'm not saying that God abides by Newton's third law, but what I am saying is this. Our sin against an eternal God, an eternal and holy God, is met appropriately by the eternal holy God with his full wrath against all the sin that we've done. If that doesn't terrify you, I don't know what will. Now, thankfully, you know, we don't have to deal with that for those of us who've been saved because that was already dealt with in Christ. And if anything, that should make you be more thankful for Christ because he didn't just deal with that for one sinner who, got, who, who repented. He, deal, he did that for all Christians. And that should make us more thankful there too. Um, but you know, we're reminded of his justice and what it means when he does have justice. And that is some comfort for believers, knowing that he will deal with all sin, right? Every injustice he will meet with appropriate force, and he will deal with it. But there's also a sobering warning for us who are believers, too, as we see in verse 9. It says here, Do not groan, brothers, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Because God will take care of every injustice and injury that his people experience, Christians are reminded that we're not to groan, grumble, or complain against one another with one fearsome detail. We are not to groan, grumble, complain, or vent against one another so that we won't be judged. And that sounds similar to James's prohibition of slandering back in James 4, 11 through 12. 
through 12, where we're reminded not to slander or condemn one another in light of the fact that God is our judge. And in a similar manner, we are encouraged not to complain against one another because of God's judgment. When you hear that God, is, that the, God the judge is at the door, that's like when SWAT is outside the door of a criminal's house and they're ready to breach. When are they going to breach? We don't know. Right? When is the judge going to come and do his judgment? We don't know. Now granted, we, when we complain as believers, right, that sin, it really is already paid for by Christ on the cross. Right? But we still get judged according to our works too. Not for condemnation, but for reward for faithfulness. But the reason why we bring this up too is not just because of the reward for faithfulness, but it's a continuation of what we were reminded of last week in Hebrews 4. We have to be diligent to enter into the rest of God. We have to be mindful of just going through the motions. God does not accept going through the motions as an acceptable form of worship because there is no love there. There is no faith there. There is no trust there. And so for those of us who might believe that we're Christians because we go to church and we do good things, we have to be careful. We still have to strive to be diligent to, be in the, uh, to enter into God's rest because, and I mean, I'm not trying to unnecessarily cause some of you to doubt your salvation, right? but are you sure are you sure that you've truly placed your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ? Are you sure that you've repented of your sin? Right, do you live in a way that a Christian should? Right, you're not going to match up perfectly, but we ought to be careful. Because if we're not, the judge is right at the door. He is right at the door. And he judges all sin. Complaining too. Now when you think about groaning, grumbling, complaining, or whatever word you want to use to make it seem as if you're not sinful, what is at the root of it? Or what is at the root of grumbling, complaining, groaning, venting? What's at the root of it? Surely judgment against one another. Right? We're condemning one another. There's some pride that's there too. Right? But there is another sin that's present that we might not be aware of. It's unbelief. It's unbelief. And when we complain, the root of it may be unbelief. Unbelief not only in the fact that God will take care of any injustices that may or may not have occurred, but even unbelief in terms of God's promises of love, care, and blessing towards those who will worship and trust him in faith. Now you might be thinking, Pastor Roger, are you crazy? That is too far. You're just reading into stuff. But think about it. When we complain about life, when we complain about work or school, about people, about circumstances, why do we complain? We complain because we wanted something or we were expecting something and we're not getting what we believe we deserve. 
We're not getting what we want. And because deep down, we do not believe that God will be faithful. We don't believe that God loves us. We give voice to our frustration. And that's what happens when we're complaining. Look at the people of Israel when they were wandering through the wilderness. When they were wandering through the wilderness, though they saw how God took down Egypt through the ten plagues, though they saw how God split the Red Sea so that they could escape Pharaoh and his chariots, though they saw how, hey, these shoes are the same shoes that I've been wearing since we left Egypt, and these clothes that I've been wearing, they're still pretty good. I have not had to do laundry since then. That's pretty good. Food? I just wake up and it's just right there waiting for me. They've seen all these acts of God, all these kindnesses of God, and yet, when there was no meat for a time, when there was no water, at least readily available, they complained to Moses. They said, dude, Moses, why did you bring us out here? Are you trying to kill us? We should go back to Egypt. We should go back to slavery. They did not believe deep down that God loved them. They did not believe deep down that God cared for them or that God would safely deliver them to the promised land. Unbelief is at the root of all of our complaining because we do not believe that God is good. We do not believe that he loves us. So they complain. And when we complain against others, it's because of the same thing. We believe that a great injustice has been done, whether it's real or imagined. And the reason why I say whether it's real or imagined is because sometimes as we go through life and we, you know, we experience things, we think we know what's going on. We think we understand the circumstances, but maybe we're reading into things, right? Maybe the person who didn't say hi back to us as we were going past them through the hall, maybe they didn't hear us. But we're like, man, I'll tell you what, that person's a jerk. I don't want to be a part of this church if that person's going to be here. I'm, I'm done. These hypocritical Christians. Right? It's like, well, are you sure that's what happened? Right? So anyways, right, whether this injustice is real or imagined, we sometimes think that nothing will be done, and so we'll complain or we leave. We run. Now, sometimes we complain because we think that, at least if we complain, someone might hear about it and they might do something about it. Right? But other times, we complain because... It's just, it just feels good, right? It just feels good to get it off our chest. And, you know, it doesn't seem like there are any, circum- uh, there are any uh, consequences to venting our frustrations and our complaints. So, you know, if I, ain't heard, if I ain't hurting nobody, what's the harm? But look at what James says in verse 9. Do not groan, brothers, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. The warning of judgment hangs over us as well. Initially, in verses 1 through 6, judgment was pronounced against those who did the harm. But now those who suffered harm are reminded that their response to suffering is equally important to God. Despite any injustice, again, real or imagined, God wants us to trust Him. He wants us to trust Him to take care of us through our circumstances. Openly complaining or venting about other people and what they've done not only casts condemnation on others, but just like Israel's complaining, it doesn't trust God either. It says that he's not good. It says that he doesn't care. 
It says that what I'm going through is more important than all of the rest of life. Woe is me. Woe is me. My life's so hard. God doesn't care. I'm all alone. All right, and this should not be how believers who are supposed to wait upon the Lord to act ought to act. If we know that God will be faithful to act because he has been faithful to act in the past, then we must wait. We must wait. We wait because we know that our Lord is coming soon. So instead of grumbling, we ought to strive to grow in our patience, to grow in our trust and dependence upon the Lord. And this brings us to the second motivation, not to grumble against one another when faced with difficulties. And that motivation is that, the, that there is blessedness of perseverance, right? There is bl- that, uh, the blessedness of perseverance. Verse 10, as an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. James knows that instructing hurt people to have patience is a tall task. And he knows that hurting people might have a hard time hearing that they have to be patient, that they have to wait upon the Lord basically until he returns, right? That's a long time. That's our lifetime, most likely. But James says... In a sense, guys, this is how it's always been for the people of God. That's why he says, take, for example, the prophets. Right? They suffered, but they had to wait upon the Lord. Now, James doesn't tell us which prophets he had in mind, but you know, we know our Bible, so we can kind of fill in the gaps just like his audience could. After all, we remember the story of David, who was both king and prophet. And God, right, he had anointed David to be king over all of Israel at the same time that Saul was already king over all of Israel. Now, David could have responded and said, well, great, I have the anointing of Yahweh, so let's go kill Saul. It's my right. But he didn't do that. He understood that there is something sacred about being chosen by God. There's something sacred about being the anointed one of Yahweh. And so even though God allowed David to be tested three times, to try and take the kingdom on his own. Right? Three vulnerable times where Saul could have been off by David at any point. David did not. He did not fail. He was tempted, but he did not fail. And this is important because, I mean, Saul hated David. He tried to pin him against the wall twice with a spear as he was just sitting there playing the harp for, for him. You know, Saul was chasing David throughout Israel when he should have been worrying about, worrying about the enemies, but instead he's like, I need to kill David. And yet, David understood, no, I can't do anything. While Saul is still king, I have to wait upon God. When God takes him out, that's when I'll be king. But only God can take him out. I cannot take him out. Right? That's trust. That's dependence. Or we wouldn't have that patience. If it was us, it's just like, no, I have been given a right I will go pursue my rights. Ain't nobody taking my rights away from me. But that's not how it is. Right? That's not how it is. When God called the prophet Jeremiah to ministry, he told Jeremiah that Jeremiah's job was to proclaim God's judgment to a people who did not want to listen to him. God even told Jeremiah, 
when you proclaim my message, there are going to be people who want to fight you. They won't listen to you, and they want to fight you, right? And, um, you know, they're going to try and kill you, but they won't because I'll take care of you. But how would you like that for your ministry? Hey, come to SF Bible. Come join our Sunday school staff and teach the Bible to people. You'll never see a convert. As you're teaching, people will be falling asleep on you. They won't be listening to you. And, uh, oh, by the way, they'll also be actively plotting to murder you. How's that for a ministry call? You guys want to join up? Probably not, right? But, but then God said to Jeremiah, hey, Jeremiah, you better say every single word that I tell you or I'm going to put you to shame in front of all these people. Right? It's not a win-win situation for him at all. Right? But he had to wait. He waited and he was faithful. He depended upon the Lord. And we know from history that other prophets suffered too. Right? Isaiah, he, he ministered to Israel for a long time. They saw his faithfulness to, to the people. But how did they treat him in the end? He got sodden too. Just like a log. The prophet Zechariah, he had a long and faithful ministry too. He was both a priest and a prophet. And he was faithful to get the people through the exile and even through the early parts of their return back to Israel. And what, what did they do to him in thanks? They killed him. They murdered him in between the temple and the altar. And that's like if you entered into the sanctuary and you're on your way up the stairs, or entered into the church and you're on your way up the stairs and they killed you in the stairway. Right? Although the temple's more holy than this place, right? But still, right? it's just like, you're going to kill him in the house of God? Yeah, that's what they did. There are many other instances of the sufferings of the prophets at the hand of their own people, which Jesus himself points to in Matthew 23, 37, when he lamented over Jerusalem and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you did not want it. Israel's history with her prophets was not great, and it didn't get any better either, because we know that it ultimately culminated in the rejection of our Lord Jesus Christ, which led to his death on the cross. He was slandered throughout his ministry. He was insulted, and he was also unjustly tried and sentenced to death. And though he did ultimately die on the cross, Jesus did not waver in his trust in God. He was resurrected again three days later to fulfill, the, uh, to fulfill the prophecies. But nonetheless, he did not waver in his trust in God. Instead, we are reminded in 1 Peter 2, 23 to 24, that Jesus, who being reviled, was not reviling in return, right? When he was being insulted and called names, he wasn't doing the same. While suffering, he was uttering no threats, we would probably have a problem with that, right? We, we get threatened. And if we were Jesus, we'd be like, I'll tell you what, you better not lay a finger on me so I'll command my angels on you. Right? We'd be more inclined to offer a threat. But that's not what he did. Right? What did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. 
This is the example that we've been left with by Christ to follow. Every believer is called to trust in God in this exact same way that Christ did because God is trustworthy. Though it is true that the prophets have indeed suffered and some of them, or, and many of them died, God is ultimately the one who kept them and he brought them to their great reward. There is nothing anyone can do in this world that can take believers away from God, even suffering, even death. Because we're reminded in Romans 8, 38 to 39, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Right? Nothing. And that list is pretty extensive. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in light of these examples and these comforting truths, we ought to continue to trust God despite our suffering. We ought to continue to trust him and not complain. Why? Verse 11, behold, we count those blessed who persevere. You've heard of the perseverance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. You know, in, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, we're given what has been nicknamed the Hall of Faith. And these saints who have gone before us, they've endured in their sufferings. They were patient, and they waited upon God. And we know for a fact that because nothing can separate them from God's love, that they are blessed because of their perseverance in their sufferings, in their trials. And their faith and perseverance is an example and an encouragement for us because it reminds us that faithfulness to God in the end, is not wasted because the prize of God himself as an inheritance is infinitely better than anything that we could ever have in this life. But the fact that blessing and reward will come in its ultimate and best form in heaven doesn't mean that God won't reward his saints in this life also. And the example of Job is a stark reminder of this. Now, throughout his trial, Job was not exactly blameless, right? Just kind of see his name linked with perseverance. It's kind of like, yeah, kind of, right? Because he, he complained a lot. He did complain a lot. He wrestled with those feelings of being wronged by God. And by the way, that, that's actually quite liberating for us, right? Knowing that it's okay, right? It is okay for us to wrestle with our emotions during times of trials, we know how we're supposed to respond. We know how we're supposed to act. But we're also human, right? We still wrestle with our sin nature. It's okay for you to wrestle. And God didn't save us to be robots. We're going to wrestle with our emotions and our feelings during times of trials. And as you read throughout the book of Job, you'll see that though he did, that though Job did wrestle at times with his emotions because of the sufferings that he endured, you'll also notice that a good portion of the time he's still defending God to his friends, right? his silly friends who thought they understood how God works, and that they end up saying things that were not how God works. Right? And, he, and Job still had right thinking about how God interacts with believers uh, and sin. Now, many of you do know also that God confronted Job. He rebuked Job for the things that Job said in frustration for the things that Job did uh, say that was wrong and complaint. Uh, but when confronted, Job repented. He repented. He responded well to the correction. He repented of his sin and he helped his friends to be right with God too. And so God blessed Job. 
in Job 42.10, we see Yahweh restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And Yahweh increased all that Job had twofold. Despite some real and completely understandable struggles with his own complaining and wrong judgments about God in his trial, Job was completely forgiven by God when he repented. And as a result, God blessed Job because he's full of compassion, because he's full of mercy. And that's why James is reminding us God is compassionate and merciful. Which is why he allowed Job to receive back a little bit, or actually not a little bit, double what he had lost. Now, God does not always bless his saints who patiently endure suffering in a similar manner as Job, right? If your car gets broken into, it's not like all of a sudden you have enough money from the insurance to get two cars, right? It's not how it works often. Now, whether that reward comes now or later, the point is that the Lord loves us. He cares for us. He is full of mercy and compassion toward his saints. Though it may not seem as if God cares about us because our circumstances and sufferings do not go away when we want them to, that doesn't mean that God does not care. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care. We recognize that despite the circumstances, God is at work to make us more like Jesus and to bring us closer to the ultimate reward, which is eternity in heaven with him. After all, really, that's what the point of eternal life is. Right? It is living forever, yes, but living forever in the full knowledge of who God is. Jesus helps us understand that in John seventeen three when he says this, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In order to grow us and move us closer to this reality, God allows trials and testing into our lives. Because back in the beginning of James's letter, he reminds his readers who were cast out of their homes, their communities, and sometimes even their families, And he says to them, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When God allows trials into the lives of his saints, both those who came before us like Job and those of us who are here now, he's not doing it out of some social scientific curiosity to see how he will respond. He's omniscient, a.k.a. he knows everything. He doesn't need these trials so that we can prove to him that we're going to be faithful. He already knows. However, he is giving us opportunities to grow. We grow into his righteous standard. We grow into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. It's kind of like when you have a newborn and you're super excited for your friend who has the newborn and you get them baby clothes that are like for 12 months, 14 months, whatever, right? It's too big. It's like, oh, this is so cute, but it's too big. Don't worry, they'll grow into it. Right? Or you get a hand-me-down from your sibling. This is too big. Don't worry, you'll grow into it. Right? Christ-likeness, being perfectly like Christ, that's too big for right now. Right? You try and put it on, it's going to be baggy. It's, it'll fail, right? We'll look kind of weird. We fall short. We don't fill it out perfectly. 
But God, through trials, through, through the testing of our faith, helps us grow into it. He helps us grow into Christ-likeness. These trials are opportunities to be tested. They're opportunities to put our theology, our love, our trust, and our faith into action. Our God loves us more than we can possibly love ourselves. Our God loves us more than we can possibly love ourselves. And that might seem like a bit of a stretch. You're just like, really? He loves me more than I love me? Because I love me a lot. I don't know how much God can love me more than I can love me. But it really is true. Right? He loves us more than we could ever love ourselves. So when he allows trials into our lives, he allows these trials into our lives not because he hates us, not because he wants us to see us suffer, but because he knows what will be good for us in the long run. We might not choose it for ourselves because we think that what we want is best for us, but he allows it because he knows what truly is best for us. And so, for this reason, when trials enter into our lives, especially at the hands of other people, we are told not to groan, grumble, complain, or vent about them in those trials. Because if we truly believe that God is sovereign, that means he sovereignly put them in your life to help you grow. We call that sanctification. So if you, know, if you have a friend who, or some person who kind of annoys the fire out of you, right, that person God sovereignly put in your life to help you grow. And so if we were to grumble against them, right, if we were to complain about them and to judge them and offer them no hope of redemption and treat them not like Christ would, we're basically saying we don't believe in the sovereignty of God. Even if we don't say in the back of our minds, or even if we don't say it in the back of our minds, it's like, it's like we're saying this, God, how could you? You know I hate them. Well, why are you letting them do stuff to me? Right? This person is the worst. Why do I have to be tested by them? But remember, God allows people from all over to be a part of this body to help us grow to become more like Jesus. And sometimes people outside the body too, right? Both. But especially within the body of believers. That's who James is addressing. And even if these trials come along with the interactions with those who are hard to love and deal with, this is all a part of God's good plan for our lives. And so the next time we're tempted to complain, let's remember that God loves them too. He wants us all to grow to become more like Jesus. Now, I know for some of you, you might be thinking, wait a second. So if I can't complain, does this mean that it's not right for me to share a prayer request that tells people, other people, you know, about the difficulties that I'm going through? The answer is complicated, right? It's a, well, yeah, but also no. There is a difference, right? There is a difference between complaining and stating the facts. Because complaining brings with it a judgment, 
of the other person or the situation. And of course, it ultimately pronounces judgment on God. God, you're not good. God, that wasn't right. right? As we're fighting against what he's brought into our lives. Right? That's what complaining is. Stating the facts, on the other hand, it recognizes the difficulties, it recognizes the struggles, but ultimately it recognizes God's goodness. Sometimes stating the facts can blur a little bit with complaining. Right? We see this in the Psalms, because sometimes David starts some of his Psalms really negative, and he's complaining, he's asking God, like, how could you, basically. Right? But then what we see in the Psalms like 99% of the times when David's complaining, what does he do? At a certain point in the psalm, he turns, he switches, and he remembers God. Right? And so um, when it comes to stating the facts, yeah, it can blur a little bit into complaining, sinful complaining. Right? But what matters is do you repent? Right? Do you repent? Do you remember God? Do you return to him? Right? Because that's what matters. That's what matters. Right, David often models this for us when he's complaining. Right, he states the facts. Sometimes he slips into some sin, but then he remembers God and then he worships. He praises God for God's goodness. If our sharing with other believers stays in the realm of complaining and reflects that heart of unbelief, distrust, and probably some gossip too, then no, you can't continue to share those prayer requests. However, if we do make sure that we fight to keep God in the picture and to state the facts, even if we're openly wrestling to get back to a God-glorifying mindset through those hardships, then we've handled the trial well. And yes, you can share those prayer requests because those are prayer requests that please the Lord. When we wrestle with sin, but then we return back to him and we remember who he is and what he's done. This morning, we've had the opportunity to study two motivations not to grumble against one another when faced with difficulties. First, we were reminded that the Lord is coming soon. Any wrongs committed against us will ultimately be paid for and answered for, either by Jesus' death and resurrection or by God's final judgment on all sinners. Knowing that God will certainly deal with any injustices committed against his people is a reminder for us not to try and take things into our own hands, but to, like Jesus, entrust ourselves to God knowing that he will always have the final say and that he will certainly make sure that justice has been met. Second, we are reminded through the example of the prophets and Job of the blessedness of perseverance. Because God is ultimately at work in our lives, we know that we can trust him through the good times and the bad. The presence of trials, difficulties, and heartache in our lives, they're not a bad thing. They're not a bad thing. For when we persevere through those trials, God strengthens our faith. He helps us grow to be more like our Savior as we endure. And as we endure, we're being prepared, even now, for the blessed inheritance of being with God for all of eternity. And that is a privilege certainly worth waiting for no matter how long it takes and no matter what we have to go through in this life. So, brothers and sisters, Let us not despise the trials that God may allow in our lives. Let us not grumble or complain about the people that God might use to grow us more in this life. But rather, let us strive to seek how we may please the Lord, even when the circumstances are less than ideal. When we're tempted to grumble and complain, let's put on a heart of faith. 
Let's fight for that faith in God. Let's fight for that belief in God. Let's put on a heart of trust in God. Let's put on a heart of thankfulness, knowing that even the trials, God's doing something. God is also full of compassion and mercy, and because of that, we can trust in Him. Before I close us in prayer and we sing a response song, I want to provide you with some application questions. And uh, believe you me, these really hurt. These really hurt. Even as I was putting them together, I was like, ooh, Lord, I need to apply these to my life. Right, and so this is not me lording it over you. This is me recognizing, this is me identifying with you saying, this sucks. Right? These questions, they're rough. But this is the mindset we got to put on. Right? And so first question, we really have to be honest with ourselves. Right? Don't fudge it. Don't hide it. Who are you tempted to complain about in your life? AKA, who are you complaining about in your life, right? Who are you complaining about? And then think about it a little deeper. What are you wanting and not getting that leads us to complain about them? You thought that one was hard. Question two. In light of the persons that you might be complaining about, how can we endeavor to do good and seek to do good that we're tempted to complain against? Right? How can we endeavor to not just think about what kind of good we can do for them, but to do it, right? to put it into action? Right? It's easy to think about it. It's tougher to put it into action. Right? And so these are some application questions for us to mull over, to meditate on. Um, and uh, yeah. Let's pray, ask God for his help, because these are really difficult. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're grateful. We're grateful for your word and for your great compassion and mercy upon us. We know, Lord, that we often fail, that we often fall short of your holy and perfect standard for us. And so we're grateful for grace, but we also know that we need your help. Because, Lord, we are so prone to wander. We are so prone to not believe in you and your goodness and your good plans for us in our lives. So we pray that you would give us a heart, not of unbelief, but of belief and of trust. We pray that as we continue to reflect on your compassion and on your mercy, that we would strive to live lives of thankfulness to you. Thank you, Father, for this time. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen.